presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcasts? Is your favorite podcast, The King of Stuff, with your favorite podcast host, John Gabriel. Have a very special interview today. Um, many months ago, we had Troy Senek on to talk about his awesome video series, and it's called Kite and Key. Check out Kite and Key Media on Twitter, YouTube, etc., which are just these short videos explaining sometimes very complex issues in a very entertaining fashion. They're really well done, really great. Well, at the time, he said he was working on a book, and I said, please, I want to have you back here when it is released, and then the week of the release, some other podcast called The Ricochet Podcast, hosted by some guy, Peter Robinson, Rob Long, James Lalex. They stole him from me as a guest. Not not really. They had just uh, um, had him on the show the week it was released. So I told Troy, let's wait a few weeks so we aren't really double dipping. Um, so I waited a few weeks and it gave me a chance also to read the great book. It is called Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland, um, a totally underappreciated president, much in the vein of 20 years ago before Amity Schley's book on Calvin Coolidge, someone who was obscure and needs a reassessment. Troy is an author, of course, and a former White House speechwriter whose writing has appeared in outlets like The Wall Street Journal, LA Times, City Journals, and more. He's also a former think tank executive. He's co-founder, as I mentioned, of Kite and Key. And uh, he was also formerly my boss right here at Ricochet uh, before I toppled him in a bloodless coup and uh, now he's out there writing books, and uh, I'm talking to you. So I, I have to work on a book so I can uh, keep up with the Senecs. But here's that interview now. Troy Senek, wonderful to have you here. You have written an expansive book on Grover Norquist, which I thought was an odd choice. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Grover Cleveland is his name. Um Absolutely fantastic book. Uh, it's called A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. And just to start, when I was working at the Goldwater Institute many moons ago, there was one um, libertarian lawyer who we would always have these discussions, especially when interns around, who's the best senator, who's the best speaker of the house, who's the best president. Mm -hmm. This one libertarian colleague would always say, Grover Cleveland. I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, I got to learn more about this guy, but nobody ever talks about him. Why did you decide to focus your attention on uh, Mr. Cleveland? Well, partially that reason. I mean, I, I had three major motivations in doing the book, um, none of which were the potential parallels with Donald Trump, with running a third time, because I actually started writing this in the middle of Trump's first term. So that wasn't mm -hmm. even on the horizon. Um, the first reason, because I thought it was just a matter of sort of intellectual or historical hygiene, because uh, we've had 45 presidents, right? Cleveland is the one who throws off the numbering because you have to count them twice with the right. nine consecutive terms. So you have to subtract one from Biden. It gets you to 45. But out of those 45, there's only been 14, so less than a third, who've done a full eight years. And if we were to go through that list, they're sort of the household names. They're the ones that everybody knows, even if they're not into the presidency or, or not history junkies. 
uh, except for Cleveland. Cleveland is oddly sort of the one omission from that list in terms of the popular consciousness. So that's point one. Point two, um, to the point made by your your friend at the Goldwater Institute, I, I did really think that for libertarians or limited government conservatives or even sort of neoliberal Democrats, that Cleveland is this interesting historical touchstone that has kind of been forgotten. So I, I was setting out to write a book with, I guess, in some ways, many of the same purposes as as Amity Schley's biography of Calvin Coolidge to kind of retrieve this figure who a lot of people would take inspiration from, who's just sort of been you know, forgotten over the 130, 140 years since he left office. And then the third reason was because I thought even if you are not uh, ideologically sympathetic to Grover Cleveland, even if you're not a limited government, free market, constitutionalist type, that his career could be an inspiration for people because – as I say in the book, I think of his career as a rebuke to political cynicism. And what I mean by that is that Cleveland's ascent, which happens very, very quickly, he goes in the span of three years between 1881 and 1884 from being a mostly anonymous lawyer in Buffalo to being the mayor of Buffalo, to being the governor of New York State, to being president. And all of this really happens if you had to reduce it down to one reason – because in an era that is maybe the high watermark of corruption in American politics, this is a guy who has no truck with it, whether it's from his fellow Democrats or the Republicans on the opposition or in the opposition, excuse me. He is um, a man who is known for integrity, a man who's known for doing what he thinks is right, a man who's known for uh, resisting uh, corruption and, and party spoilsmanship. And uh, particularly at a moment where I think everybody is a little cynical about American politics, I wanted to show that in moments like that, part of the genius of the American system is that it can yield up these kinds of personalities in those moments, even if they come kind of through a side door like Grover Cleveland did. One thing that I really enjoyed about the book, I have to read a lot of books. Sometimes I have to, sometimes I do it for pleasure, but a lot of them are like going to a dental appointment. It's like, well, I need to know more about the subject or other people are talking about this. And this was just a delight to read, um, read it very quickly because there's just like a light touch. There's lots of facts and figures and important issues going on and some can be pretty dry, but you make them interesting. And then too, there's um, just like a touch of, I'll say a light touch. There's a touch of humor to it, which just makes it very enjoyable to write or to read. And it was something that I was thinking, wow, the Senate guy can write good, good for him. He's really, <laughs> he's really coming along, but no, it just, it just made it kind of propelled it forward, which was really great because I don't know, you might be thinking Grover Cleveland. I don't know. I don't really care, but it's really interesting. And not only talking about his life, but everything going on in the country then, because just like the presidents from that era are not well known, that era is not well known. You know, you have some vague inklings of robber barons and Tammany Hall, and I think we fought Spain at some point. But <laughs> it, it just kind of brings to life that era of America and uh, the overreach of the Republicans, just kind of riding high um, post-Reconstruction, I guess. So it was right. just very enjoyable to read. I really appreciate that, and I um, haven't really talked about this in any of the other interviews I've done about the book, but I'm glad that you bring that up because everything that you're 
describing um, was really deliberate. Like when I when I sat down to write this book, and I think it's probably you know at some level cost it some prestige points probably because this is not a this is not a doorstop biography. This is right. not a nine hundred page biography. Partially because I say this is somebody who obviously admired Grover Cleveland enough to write a book about him. You can't justify a nine hundred page mm-hmm. biography of Grover Cleveland, but. I thought, you know, if my goal is to make this somewhat obscure figure better known amongst the broader public, you know, they are only ever going to read one thing about Grover Cleveland. And if you don't (laughs) write if you don't write that book well, they're probably going to put it down two, three chapters in. So, you know, I really started with what are the essential parts of this story and then tried to ruthlessly chip away at them. Until I got to the point where I felt like I could I, I don't want to overstate the pace at which the the book moves, but I was thinking I want to get this to almost like a, a screenplay tempo. I, I don't want it to linger too long on any one thing. Partially, this is a function of my own impatience. I have to tell you, I read a lot of history, but I, I get very fatigued. Uh, with yeah. history that spends two or three pages telling you what the furnishings inside a room look right. like. And to your point, beyond telling Cleveland's story, and I mentioned this a little bit in the book, um, and I think this is understandable, but I think most Americans, whether they're history buffs or not, know more about eras in American history that are further removed from us than this one. You sort of understand the dynamics around the founding better than the Gilded Age. You understand the dynamics around the Civil War better than the Gilded Age. So to a certain degree... The idea here was to do not only the story of Grover Cleveland, but the story of Grover Cleveland and his era, you know, to try to resurrect these things that you may have a dim memory of. I mean, the more people I talk to, the more I get the sense that everybody's sort of high school experience was the same as mine, which is that you did a day (laughs) and a half on this, you know, in high school history. And you have sort of a vague sense of what the Pullman strike and things like that were. So it was to try to, you know, vivify those things and, and put them in a context that that people could understand because so many of these issues are so foreign to the year to the um, America as, as, as it is in 2022. Especially with Grover Cleveland's restraint at, you know, yes. I don't know, there's a disaster. Well, it's not really the federal role to intervene. It'll right. weaken the national character. It's like, I love this guy. He's like, uh, <laughs> and I think you might've mentioned on Twitter or somewhere. He's like uh, president Ron Swanson. And a, and a lot of times just like, Oh, suck it up. Come on. We all have a tough time. Yeah, and was- it didn't come from this. I'm above you. I'm an elite in Washington. It was no, he just, he's a guy who <laughs> from his childhood just worked his butt off, you know, working on the Erie Canal, waking up at 4 a.m. or whatever it was um, to get out there to beat the competition. He's just someone who worked and worked and worked and didn't think of that as a bad thing. Woe is me. He thought of that as this is what it makes. This is what makes America great. Yeah, he is a very um, little D democratic personality. And so far as I mean, you really get this right. He never even when he's president of the United States thinks of himself as some inherently superior figure. Um, he just does not have any of the pretense of of politics. You can see in a lot of his correspondence after he leaves office, the fact that he he loves in his retirement just being treated like a normal person because he never <laughs> thought that he was anything more than a normal person. And the point you bring up a little before that is, is one that I deal with in the book, particularly in the introduction, 
because I have a mild and unhealthy obsession with presidential rankings and the presidential uh-huh. rankings business. It drives me a little batty because the way that it is usually calibrated is probably fair enough for presidents of the last century or so. It has a real recency bias. It's how aggressively were they pushing legislation? How forceful a foreign policy leader were they? How much of a visionary were they? You know, and if you said the word visionary to Grover Cleveland, he'd go cross-eyed. That was just not his <laughs> not his conception of the office um, at all. And in fact, late in the book, I have a quote from a friend of his who I I think this is not said explicitly in the quote, but I think is saying this in contrast to the subsequent presidency of Woodrow Wilson, who says it never would have occurred to Grover Cleveland to think that it was his job to remake society. I mean, he has a he just has a much narrower. Uh, much more constitutionalist understanding of what the responsibility of the president is. And um, it it does seem antique to to modern onlookers. And it's not just operating within the constraints of the Constitution, which is very important to him. But it's also this sense that he's thinking, I am not here to cooperate, even with fellow members of my own party in Congress. I'm here as the representative of the people, as the representative of the voters, which is one of the reasons that you get displays like his first term where he vetoes 414 bills, (laughs) which is more than all 21 of his predecessors combined. So he really – he's sort of walking the beat when he's president. He he really considers this being the sort of night watchman for the taxpayer. Yeah, that is a fantastic way to put it. And – He's a president who understood the meaning of the term president, um, the one who presides. Right. He's, he's not right. there to be the great leader, put on the Napoleon hat, and uh, rough, rush the nation off to war, uh, kind of like Coolidge. He's like, no, I'm here to preside, make sure things don't get too crazy with the legislation coming out of Congress, and uh, keep everything on an even keel. And boy, could we use that these days. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he um, and he's really uh, I mean, remember, Grover Cleveland is a Democrat. He is really the end of the line of this mindset within the Democratic Party because he's so he's something of an anomaly in his own era because Cleveland first gets elected in 1884 because of the fallout from the Civil War and the Democratic Party's association with the Confederacy. There hasn't been a Democratic president elected to office since James Buchanan. In he was great, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the sainted James Buchanan. Yeah. And there's not another one until Woodrow Wilson in 1912. And I certainly don't need to tell you or your listeners <laughs> that by the time you get to a Woodrow Wilson presidency, that is a very different Democratic Party than the Democratic Party of Grover Cleveland. And in fact, by the time that uh, Cleveland dies, it, which is uh, 1907, 1908 – as we're approaching the 1908 election, he is really in more sympathy with the Republican Party than with the Democratic Party. I mean, by the time that he is is leaving the planet, a guy like William Howard Taft sounds more like Grover Cleveland than people like William Jennings Bryan or, or right. Wilson, who are at the forefront of the Democratic Party. Yeah, um, Warren G. Harding might not have his commitment to honesty, let's say, 
But uh, yeah, you can see them agreeing on a whole bunch of issues. Return That's right. to normalcy. Everybody calm down. That's right. <laughs> let's That's just right. let's uh, let the country bloom on its own because all the fundamentals are there. Yeah, they sort of pump the brakes presidencies. Right, right. Which uh, I'm always in favor of. Well, another thing that's interesting, too, is learning more about this era. It has a whole bunch of parallels to today, which I was not expecting. Because some of the issues you're talking about are tariffs and gold standard and things which seem kind of wonky. It's like, okay, how does that work again? Right. But during that time, and you see it with all these this labor unrest, you see um, anarchists are killing leaders in other parts of the world. You have socialism on the rise very aggressively. You have labor coming up, and there's something called communism a couple people are discussing. But all this ferment in a time of rapid industrial change, um, it seems really familiar to me and far more familiar than I was thinking with uh, people saying, okay, all the old rules are done. Progressivism is the way, and depending on how far you take it, if you go the TR route or the anarchist route, he was battling all those same things, and in a way, we're experiencing a similar dilemma. That's right. And even where the particulars differ, I, I think the big line that you can draw thematically between that era and this one is the sense of instability. That there is there is really a sense that the the center cannot hold. I mean, there are at least two instances that I talk about in the book where the people of the era really think legitimately, I mean, this is not particularly hyperbolic, that they are on the cusp of falling into a second civil war. Now, remember, I mean, you are, when Cleveland is first elected, you're really only 20 years removed from the right. end of the civil war. But when Cleveland runs for president the first time in 1884, this is eight years after uh, the 1876 election, which we've all now become familiar with again in the, in the last couple of years, where there's a, a real dispute over who won the presidential election. It ends up going to Hayes, who's the Republican, but the Democrats feel like they've been cheated out of this. And the 1884 election, eight years later, is initially inconclusive. For the first few days, it's not clear who won. And the thought is that if Cleveland loses, if uh, Democrats end up feeling as if another presidential candidate has had an election taken from him, that that could touch off a civil war. And then in his second term in 1894, when the Pullman strike comes up, you have a, a localized rail dispute in Chicago that ends up spilling out to become a huge national dispute between labor and capital. And it's slowly growing and slowly growing and sort of paralyzing commerce in the region, eventually paralyzing commerce in significant swaths of the country. Again, you get to a point at the climax of that where Eugene Debs, who is leading the labor side, and had actually been pretty responsible early mm -hmm. on in this conflict. I was surprised how responsible he was as a, as a young man. It's funny. When you read the full account of this, because the stuff that comes down to us through history about Debs tends to be the most, um, the most flamboyant, the most aggressive, he's actually – yeah, as you say, he's utterly reasonable at the start of this dispute and is very cautious in terms of how labor needs to play their hand. And then by the time this all plays out, you've got him saying 90 percent of the country is going to go to war with the other 10 percent. And I'd sure rather be on the side of the 90 percent. But, you know, really meaningful when it's coming from a figure like that in that context. And people at this point are thinking we're going to fight a civil war on on class lines. Mm -hmm. So you've got that happening. And then on the political side – 
as you people will know if they read my book, because I go through basically four presidential elections here, and the common thread you see running through all of them is the is the parties fracturing, is these different factions going in different ways, these third party candidacies by greenback candidates or prohibitionist candidates or or populist candidates. You can just feel the ground moving the entire time. And that there is that sense animating this whole era that these are the birth pangs of something. You know, whether it's going to turn out to be a disaster or whether it's going to turn out to be a good thing, they didn't know that. But you can just feel how unsettled the ground is. And I think there are a lot of parallels to today on that front. And definitely. And another thing I appreciated as well is his anti-imperialist bona fides because I used to yeah. be, be an ex-Navy guy. It's like, yeah, let's go to war. Let's, <laughs> no one should disrespect <laughs> us. And it's one of those things. Every few years, the older I get, it's just like, oh, we got to stop already. And uh, I've been reading the background of like John Quincy Adams and his foreign policy is like, look, we're, we will do everything we need to do to defend our liberty here and we will wish everyone well, but that's it. <laughs> we wish you well. Right. And he's someone, there was a lot of skullduggery going on in Hawaii to um, from a lot of the rich whites who had created plantations there. That's how the Dole Pineapple family came to prominence mm-hmm. and tried to take over um, the air, take over the islands from the royalty that reigned there, which was pretty darn good for a royalty, I have to say. Reading, I lived out there, so I read some Hawaiian history as well. Um, they had flaws, but uh, they weren't these oppressive monsters or anything. Um, but he was just very squeamish about that. He was very squeamish when people saying we have to go to war over Cuba um, and where eventually the Spanish-American War comes up to play. He was just like, look, this is not our job to be taking on these islands around the world. We need to stay within our own borders. And, uh, you know, we expanded all the way west. That's enough. And uh, I don't know. In this day and age, I really appreciate it. Not uh, sticking our noses into everybody's business. Yeah, he doesn't have um, a particularly complex or sophisticated, and I don't, I don't mean that as an insult, but um, conception of foreign policy. He has kind of taken his thinking about that issue wholesale from the, the founding generation. I mean, he, he really thinks of it as, you know, America's role is to tend to its own territory, of course, and its own national interests. But Otherwise, we just want to stay out of these things. We should be a, a non-interventionist country. And he inherits this Hawaii problem coming into his second term because the coup, which is essentially what it was, where the business interests in Hawaii overthrew the monarchy, happens at the end of Benjamin Harrison's term, between Cleveland's two terms, and is really not engineered by the Harrison administration, not really authorized by the Harrison administration, but is is really advanced by their ambassador in Hawaii, who is the one who is um, the most aggressively in favor of annexation. And in the end, all that Cleveland is really able to accomplish, which is not nothing, um, is staving off the annexation. What he wanted to do was actually to restore the monarchy. But Congress wasn't with him. There was essentially no real way to do this without the use of military force, which Congress wasn't going to support. So he manages to stave off the inevitable for a few years. Hawaii ends up getting annexed in the first term of the McKinley administration under the justification that, well, the Spanish-American War really shows us, you know, we need to have this strategic piece of land in the middle of Hawaii. But what's interesting, you know, Hawaii, there are all of these 
moral considerations involved. And I think Cleveland comes out looking quite good on this front. If you read the messages that he sends to Congress, this is an issue he's really anguished over. He just thinks this is totally at odds with the American character for us to be party to overthrowing a sovereign government. And not only that, but installing a government that was less liberal than the monarchy it, it replaced. I mean, the business interests really had it in mind that they were going to disenfranchise a significant part of the population of Hawaii, which they did. But there are even cases where the cost-benefit analysis is different, and he still comes down the same way. So when he comes into office in his first term, he's actually inherited an agreement from his predecessor, Chester Arthur, that would have built what was essentially the Panama Canal before the Panama Canal. It would have gone across Nicaragua. And he likes this idea. He thinks that there should be a transoceanic canal like this. You can imagine the difference it would have made for the U.S.'s role in the world if this had happened, you know, a couple decades before it, it ended up happening. But he is unwilling to countenance it because Nicaragua has to become an American protectorate for this to work. And he just doesn't see that as the responsibility of the United States government. We are not going to be you know, a police force in, in other parts of the world. So even when it comes at real political cost to him, this is just a line he is not willing to cross. And it's refreshing, too, because in that same era, you had all these filibusters going down to Nicaragua yeah, itself and right. trying to set up their own little uh, um, colonies, kind of trying to recreate a Texas Republic of Central America with the hopes of being annexed and made a state later on. And uh, he's just like, no, no, no. <laughs> all we're doing is aggravating our neighbors um, he would get involved. Uh, there was a dispute that you mentioned with the United Kingdom and Venezuela. Right. And that was one of the more amusing things because he was so bullheaded and stubborn and anti-British. It cracked me up with all his missives, his anti-diplomatic diplomacy, <laughs> just telling <laughs> the crowd to go, sh go pound sand. Yeah, there are these um, correspondences, which I, I reproduce at some length in the book just because I think they're really amusing between his secretary of state and, and the British prime minister. And you and can tell – him and saying, don't send the letter. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll make it tougher. Right, right. And this – I have to say, as, as a diplomatic matter – all of this was probably foolhardy. I mean, right. it was not it was not moving him closer to his goal of resolving this. It was a territorial dispute between Venezuela and then uh, Britain next door in, in British Guyana. But this interchange is <laughs> fascinating because the Secretary of State uh, and the Prime Minister of Great Britain are just constantly um, digging at each other and there's a lot of there's a lot of what in the modern parlance we'd call subtweeting there's just a, a lot of particularly on the british side you don't really know what you're talking about i am going to walk you through exactly how stupid you are and on the american side this sort of correspondingly um grandiose pronouncement of America's role in the world. And as I say, sort of contrary to some of the other stuff in the Cleveland administration, you do see embedded in this. This is an area where there's more overlap with Cleveland and, and what follows with Woodrow Wilson. You do see in this correspondence that sense that animates that early 20th century sort of optimism about legalistic solutions to what are at their core sort of raw power problems in foreign policy, the same ideas that animated things like the League of Nations, in that Cleveland and his Secretary of State Olney 
are talking about war being outmoded, just a thing that civilization has moved beyond. And we're going to come to a place where all of this can set, be settled through arbitration, which after all is the path that all reasoned and enlightened people must take. And it's, I understand uh, they you serve it a little thick. It's wedded to tradition in the UK don't understand this. But war is over, just like John Lennon will say, and uh, <laughs> arbitration is the way to go. It's obvious, and uh, why don't you get with the times, Brits? Yeah, it's not uh, – I think it is a, not a moment that reflects as well on, on Cleveland <laughs> as the as the Hawaii moment does because the Hawaii moment comes from a place of real moral conviction that I think it's pretty – Pretty hard to argue with the underlying principles, even if you don't agree with the specific sort of policy response to it. And then you read the disputes over Venezuela and you think, OK, these these guys are drinking their own bathwater. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, very interesting to see. And, yeah, it was that whole the whole mood of the time reading about Wilson, the whole Hegelian attitude of we're coming to the end of history and yeah. uh, now war is officially done. That's in the past and we can never return to it because history is guiding us forward. And it's obvious there's going to be no more war. And what's odd, too, is seeing people talking like this a decade or two before World War One, <laughs> followed right. a few years later by World War Two. But, yeah, they were true believers in this, that the human race is, you know, we've already had Darwin. That revolution has kind of taken hold and entered political science. And it's like, well, it's obvious we've evolved past this. What what are you people hung up on war for? Right. And what is so striking about it as regards Cleveland and even in writing and researching the book, I was never able to quite square this, is that it is – pretty contrapuntal to the rest of his personality, right? Everything else that he does in office does not smack of this kind of utopianism. I mean, he he really sort of digs in uh, on first principle, which I guess you can see the continuity there. But otherwise, he has got um, what today we would think of as a, as a very libertarian or at least classical liberal allergy to – uh, people prescribing solutions from the top down. He's not a utopian. He is not somebody who thinks that government can fix everything. In fact, you know, quite the opposite. So it's a little bit of a deviation for him to all of a sudden get this intoxicated by the idea that there is some framework, you know, that can take care of this on the international stage. Right, right. Um, but still, he's one good thing too is. You say all the good things about him, um, which should be recognized since he's been so forgotten. But also you talk about his temperamental issues. <laughs> it's just yeah. he was, you know, could be very self-righteous at time and incredibly stubborn. And sometimes that's funny, but it's like, oh, it's no wonder you're booted out after one term. And uh, just the way that the stars aligned for his second term got him into office again. It's like you still had all that corruption and infighting and people like – Remember that Grover Cleveland fellow? At least we could trust him. Let's put him back right. in office. And then the same people who enthused about him within a year were like, oh, gosh, that's why we got rid of him. Right, right. We forgot this guy was a massive pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's funny. One of the reasons that I think he's so compelling as a character study, and, and I really set out not to um, – I just think so much of the fashion in, in popular history is to write either hagiographies or, or to write things that are devoted to sort of deconstructing somebody. Right. And I just wanted to play this as down the middle as possible because I actually think that that's not only the most honest but sort of the most intellectually fertile way to think particularly about somebody like this because what I found so strange about him – and I say this both admiringly and somewhat critically 
uh, because I, I, I can't think of many people, maybe anybody else in the history of the presidency, to, to which this quite applies at least as much, is that, as I say towards the end of the book, we are quite used, especially in this day and age, to politicians who have kind of the raw skills that are necessary for the the blocking and tackling of politics. Like they've really mastered how to climb the greasy pole. And then when they get to the top of it, when they finally get to whatever the summit of their particular mountain is, you realize that they don't really know why they did it. They, <laughs> they don't know what it is that they want to do in office. They don't really have a, a um, strong sense of their sort of anchoring convictions. And that's pretty common. And it's especially common in this day and age. And what I find so bizarre about Cleveland is that he's the opposite. Uh, he really understands his core convictions. He really understands what he thinks his obligations are in office. He is, as you suggest, sort of immovable on, on matters of first principle. Yet at the same time, and this sounds strange to say about somebody who was elected president of the United States twice, and, and it is a bit of an overstatement, but he's not a great politician. He is actually not very good at understanding the sort of the way you move across the chessboard of politics. He is not a guy who thinks in terms of, I'm gonna manipulate this faction in this direction and this one and this, and I'm gonna trade this for that. That's never the arithmetic that he's doing. And you know, as Woodrow Wilson says of him, Wilson, it's worth mentioning earlier in his career, sort of contemporary with Cleveland's presidency, is not nearly as progressive and is actually quite sympathetic to Cleveland's presidency on several fronts. And Wilson says at one point in uh, his sort of uh, autopsy of the Cleveland administration after Cleveland has left office that his calculations were never intelligible to other politicians simply because he wasn't making calculations. It, it was <laughs> right. so simple to Cleveland. It was just what do I think is right and how can I effectuate that? And oftentimes he didn't effectuate it because he chose the most straightforward course as opposed to you know, kind of figuring out the politicians figure eight ar around an issue. But it just makes for a fascinating study because usually if that's your deficiency, um, you don't end up being president of the United States. And it's just really, in Cleveland's case, I think a matter of how he matched up with the moment. You know, people were so fed up with the state of American politics that to get this figure who sort of seemed like a, you know, a purgative for the politics of that era just allowed him to rocket up to the heights of American politics in a way that I don't think he would if he was a figure of 10 years earlier or 10 years later. He just sort of uniquely fit his moment. Exactly, exactly. So everybody go read this. It's available at Amazon, of course, and other fine booksellers. A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life, and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. And I love the cover with the big walrus mustache. It's just <laughs> perfect for the title. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All credit goes to my publishers on that because they took this photograph and they colorized it, which I thought was so important because it just sort of pulls him forward into history. He's not a figure that is that far removed from us. But when you see all the black and white photographs of him, he just seems like a figure from another era. And I was so pleased when they showed me this because this just feels like a flesh and blood human being in a way that you don't normally see him. Right, right, exactly. Well, where can people find you online? You, of course, also have the great uh, video series of Kite and Key, which I have actually used as uh, Cliff's Notes to uh, write op-eds here and there. So uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you and Kite and Key? 
you can find me on Twitter at Troy underscore Senek. And you can find Kite and Key on Twitter at Kite and Key Media, or you can go to kiteandkeymedia.com. And we put out a, a new video every week based on uh, the latest public policy research, helping people to understand you know, somewhat complicated issues of the kind that I used to, like you, work on as a, as a think tank guy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Troy, for spending time with us and a great chatting with you and a fantastic read. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time in music stores, and there is a problem with many. First off, you have the small neighborhood joints, friendly staff, great people, almost no selection at all. I notice that a lot buying instruments for my kids and uh, hanging out with my friends who are guitarists, etc., going to music stores in the area. The other place are the huge music centers where the sales staff seems to be paid on commission. So they all harass you and hassle you and try to uh, upsell you into equipment you don't want or need. Thankfully, there's now a solution to that. American Musical Supply stocks the latest and greatest gear from today's top brands. Everything for a beginner to a seasoned professional. Also, everything for the podcaster, home recording enthusiasts, guitarists, drummers, vocalists, DJs, and much, much more. American Musical Supply also has the best payment plans. They approve more people and don't require you to open a new credit card. You can just use one of your existing credit cards. Payment plans vary between 4 and 18 months. You're pre-approved on their 4- and 6-month payment plans with no credit check. This is really important, too, especially as a podcaster. Equipment always seems to fail when you need it really quickly. American Musical Supply has four warehouses across the U.S., which provide fast, free shipping. They keep the best top gear in each warehouse and can get to most of the U.S. in one or two days. Over 30 years of award-winning customer service at American Musical Supply. And we have a special deal for you. Go to AmericanMusical.com and use the King of Stuff promo code KING to receive $20 off your next purchase over $100. Once again, go to AmericanMusical.com and use the King of Stuff promo code KING to receive $20 off your next purchase over $100. And thanks very much to American Musical Supply to sponsoring the King of Stuff podcast. Okay, thanks to Troy for that. I want to cover a few other things in the news. Start off with midterm stuff. I really think everything is breaking the Republicans' way at this point. Seems like all the shifty, weird races are going their way. Uh, Going around the country, I'll start with my own state, Arizona. This is Carrie Lake as a Republican. She's tied herself very closely to Trump, has been very big in the Stop the Steal relitigating 2020, and I've been wondering why she's doing that. She doesn't need to do that. Uh, Thankfully, she's put that a bit on the back burner uh, for the general election, but she's running against the current Arizona Secretary of State, whose name is Katie Hobbs. Now, Katie Hobbs is refusing to debate, and I think this explains why. She's at an event that happened over the weekend, I believe, uh, reaching out to Latino voters, and uh, she was asked a question, what have you learned from the Latino community. And here's her attempting to answer, it's really bad. Let me ask you, how has it impacted you personally? What have you learned, specifically learned from the Latino community? Oh, 
That's a great question. Um, I don't necessarily uh, think about it that way in those terms. I think um, I really value uh, my relationships across the board with, um, with 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 different folks, and um, and I learn all the time from from people uh, in my life. My sister-in-law, um, she is uh, Latino, and uh, her family. Uh, I love hanging out with them and uh, practicing my Espanol. <laughs> uh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just it's um, I learned so much from from her family. Uh, but I think um, it, it, it's really hard to separate out Arizona and subtract Latino culture because it's so much a part of who we are as a state. And um, and I and I, um, I, I Arizona wouldn't be Arizona without the what the Latino community brings. So there's not one specific lesson you could share with me, other than Espanol. <laughs> It's one third of the state. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I, I. I mean, I think there's there's many lessons. Uh, the the emphasis on uh, family values, uh, hard work. Uh, those are those are something that I value in my own life. And um, you know. Oh my gosh! First off, the voice. Second off, uh, uh, she says uh more than I do on this podcast, and that is saying something. Not a good job. Not a good job at all there. And I see why she's not debating Carrie Lake, who's very polished, was in the local, she was in local TV news here for, I don't know how long, at least 20 years, going back to the 90s at least. Seems like she had been an anchor forever on uh, the Fox affiliate out here. Blake Masters also had a debate with Mark Kelly, the incumbent senator for the Democrats, who's basically, he's running on nothing but abortion. That's all he cares about is talking about abortion, which just seems bizarre because that's not what the voters care about, according to all the polls. A very small number of people are going to make their decision on that alone. But uh, Blake Masters, he did a very good job. First off, he's like a foot taller than Mark Kelly, which I never knew before. But Mark Kelly spent most of the time trying to disown everything that Joe Biden has done, including all his votes supporting Joe Biden. And uh, the border came up. Mark Kelly said, I've been focused like a laser. Every day I'm focused on the border. To which Blake Master says, well, if you've been doing that for two years, focusing on the border, it obviously hasn't worked. You might want to resign. I think he won pretty pretty handily. Uh, some Democrats were trying to pretend he did not. I think it went his way. Then let's move on to Ohio. J.D. Vance had his debate. He's running for Senate as well. He's running against Tim Ryan. Also, Tim Ryan did horribly. J.D. Vance won. Calm and composed. Tim Ryan, abortion, abortion, abortion. We're seeing this again and again. Uh, Democrats, come on, man. It's the economy, stupid. You're the guys who invented that statement. Shouldn't be that difficult. Herschel Walker had a setback. There's some gross story involving him potentially paying for somebody to have an abortion, but the person isn't coming out publicly, and there's not total evidence for this. So I, I don't know what exactly is going on here. Again, people in Georgia have known about this a long time. He has a very checkered past, like many, many, many pro athletes. And again, we're talking the fundamentals of the race here. I think uh, they uh, shot the story out a little bit too early to make a big impact. And also the governor of their camp is running against Stacey Abrams, and he is going to crush her. 
as of today, Tuesday, when I'm recording this, um, Warnock, who is running against Herschel Walker, is in an embroglio of his own. Apparently, he gets something like a $7,500 a month housing allowance from his church, which that's a lot of money. That is a whole lot of money. And also property that him and his church own have tried to evict people during the coronavirus pandemic. Not missing the moment, Herschel Walker has offered to pay the $4,500 in past due rents for all the people Warnock is trying to convict. So um, that race is getting pretty ugly down there. The other one, Pennsylvania. Fetterman, this guy has had a stroke and he is really not doing well. NBC News finally did a long interview with him. He's just been hiding and saying, oh, no, everything's fine. And his social media team is doing nothing but insulting Dr. Oz, who he's running against. But the NBC News report said John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee in a crucial Pennsylvania Senate race, still struggles to understand what he hears and to speak clearly following his stroke in May. Fetterman at the same time says it will not affect his ability in the slightest if he wins this election and becomes a senator. And NBC News, to its credit, said, um, why are you declining requests to share your medical records and uh, allowing us to interview your doctors? And he's like, well, it's not a problem. I've released everything I want to release. It's pretty rough. Why would you vote for this guy? He's not up to it. He can spend some time in recovery. Maybe he can run again in a few years whenever there's another seat available. It's just a very strange situation to try to hide this guy. And kind of like all these people saying, no, I'm not going to debate. I'm not going to debate. You're seeing this repeatedly throughout a lot of different races coming up to the midterms. You can't run the Biden playbook, folks. You don't have the excuse of being 78 years old and a pandemic is raging. You don't have that excuse anymore. I'm sorry. Let it go and get out there and meet and greet and mix it up with voters. It's the only way you have a chance to win. And uh, this kind of uh, modified Rose Garden strategy, it will not work. So I'm getting more and more bullish about the Republicans. It seems like the general trend line is uh, turning Republicans' ways. Independents are trending to the GOP right now. Not to mention, you know, of course the GOP can mess it up. And even if elected, we're going to be all frustrated with them. However, I think it's going the Republicans wait at this point, a little bit under a month out from the actual election. Oh, you also have the Ukraine. Um, it's mixed things going on there. Ukraine took out, at least partially, took out a bridge that connects Russia to Crimea. It was considered a scar on the landscape of Crimea by the Ukrainians because they're like, no, that belongs to us. You took it in 2014. That was illegal. You could not build a bridge to connect it directly to Russia. Well, they did this crazy attack, blew up at least part of the bridge. It's undergoing repairs now. I think cars can go through on a single lane and uh, Russians are being kind of cagey about when train service can be up and running. But it's pretty tough. Then Putin just had a temper tantrum, and he's been shelling and attacking civilian areas, uh, infrastructure in Ukraine, in and around Kiev, I'm supposed to pronounce it now, and elsewhere. So it's pretty ugly. It looks like Putin is losing at this point. His troops aren't getting it done, and uh, we will see what happens. But uh, he is not ready to give up, to say the least. He plans to brazen it out. Something that happened last week, I might have mentioned this on last week's show, 
Elon Musk uh, promoted a peace plan, and it was naive and dumb. It wouldn't have worked. I want to go through it all again because uh, that's like a week old news now. Well, he was just destroyed by Ukrainian leaders, diplomats, Americans, Lindsey Graham, Adam Kinzinger, all these nominal GOPers. How dare you offer this plan? Okay, it was a dumb plan. It was very naive. It would not have worked. But the rage people had at him for doing this. Now they're saying one reporter said, oh, well, I have information that he talked to Vladimir Putin and got his approval before he tweeted this peace plan out. That doesn't even make sense to me. Elon Musk said, no, that reporter's lying. Don't trust him. The reporter doubled down. I don't know what happened with it. What's interesting to me, though, is just looking at the freak out if anybody challenges the narrative. There are some of us who, you know, have a soft spot for Ukraine. They were the victim here. They were the one invaded by Putin. He had no reason to go in there whatsoever. And uh, it completely um, is his fault. And so you want to see Ukraine keep their country, push them out of there. Um, on the other hand, this just weird jingoistic warmongering thing, not by Ukrainians. I totally understand that Ukrainians are going to be Ukrainian nationalists. But among so many people in the media, in Western Europe, in global organizations, and just everywhere in U.S. media, just this bloodthirsty, kill them all, let God sort them out attitude. It's just really bizarre to see because these are the same people constantly bashing American nationalists, and these people are bad. And you can't be this jingoistic, flag-waving troglodyte promoting America, love it or leave it. But they want us at the same time, they want all Americans to be Ukrainian nationalists all of a sudden. That, that ain't our country, people. I'm, uh, I have a Ukrainian aunt, and being of Finnish descent, I uh, definitely admire anybody sticking it to the Ruskies. However, uh, we have to debate how much money we're sending over there. It is not a blank check, and apparently everybody in government thinks it is a blank check. And we also have to assess the flaws that we had moving in and trying to just basically embrace Ukraine and pull them into the Western European orbit. There's a lot of mistakes made. And yeah, that's not an excuse for Putin. But to pretend like we didn't do anything wrong is just stupid as well. Uh, Putin reacted ridiculously wrongly to this. But we need open debate about this. And it's just very weird. Whenever everybody in the narrative is like trying to shout down everybody who doesn't follow it, and say, this is the only way you can think about it. I'm like, all right, what are you trying to sell me? I'm not buying the Buick, pal. You know, it's like talking to a used car dealer. So um, the freak out is continuing because Elon Musk said, maybe it would be nice if everybody stopped murdering each other. That would be great. Maybe it would be nice if we avoided nuclear Armageddon, as uh, Joe Biden warned about on Friday night, I think it was. Some of us think it would be best for peace to reign. And yeah, I don't know exactly how to uh, make that happen. Musk plan wouldn't work, but I'd rather have people talking about the best way to pursue peace in the reason in the region than about how many dirty Ruskies they want to kill. Um, I, I don't want to see, you know, I'm a softie. I don't want to see a bunch of pimple-faced 18-year-old Russian conscripts who just want to go home. I don't want to see them all blasted up and dead either. They don't want to be there. And obviously the Ukrainians don't want them there. It'd be better for everyone if somehow this was resolved peacefully. And that's what our politicians should focus on, pursuing peace instead of kill them all, let God sort them out. It's just crazy. And it's crazy to see the rabidness of all these people with Ukrainian flags in their bios. 
and um, especially U.S. politicians with the Ukrainian flag first, American flag second. It's like, wait, which country are you representing now? And a year from now, it'll be some other conflict. It'll be some other issue with the environment or with race or with poverty. And then they'll have emoji representing that. They're just, this is the approved narrative. This is what we have to do. And I always blanch when I feel like everybody controlling the levers of power are pushing people in a certain direction. We can slow down. We can discuss this. We can go through Congress, find out, okay, how much more in debt? We're 31 trillion in debt. How much more debt do we want to uh, incur to support Ukraine? It's not a radical. This is not Putin backing. This is common sense. And these are the kind of things you're supposed to debate in Congress and in public. And uh, a little more open minds on these issues would be appreciated. But one thing I forgot to mention as far as uh, going around for the midterms, Lee Zeldin, he is the guy running against uh, Kathy Holchel, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, to be governor of New York. And he's been doing really well in the polls, especially that is one blue state. And uh, it's been looking pretty good because as Kathy Holchel, she was never elected. She just replaced Cuomo. There was a shooting right outside his house. Two teenagers were injured. He's been campaigning on crime and how New York State is not doing enough to address the issue of crime. And then he has a major shooting, a drive-by shooting right outside his house. Yeah, this is obviously going to play right into his hands. Hopefully the people will um, recover the people who were shot. But it was gang violence. The Bloods gang, I didn't even know they were still a thing. I'm not up on my gangs. Kathy Holchol's like, oh, I'm so glad he's safe. And don't worry, we are on the case. Look, you've been ignoring crime for two years now. Stop it. Um, I think this could really help him. And that would be pretty amazing to get a Republican governor in New York State. That would be major red wave stuff. Oh, and also Tulsi Gabbard, she has left the Democratic Party. I didn't even know she was still in the Democratic Party. She hasn't been in Congress for, I don't know, two years, four years, something like that. Uh, she made an announcement, and here it is. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that is now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoke anti-white racism, actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms. Uh, way to go, Tulse, or friends. I can call her Tulse. I don't think anybody should be shocked by this. She probably just went independent. I've been independent a long time. Um, it isn't very a bold, a bold move in that she's never going to hold Democratic uh, Party office again. Good for her. She's kind of an odd duck, but I like odd ducks. She focuses on kind of strange issues, but I like that. I, I want diverse opinions out there flowing around. The usual suspects, of course, hammered her, and she's a grifter, and I don't know how she's making money off leaving the Democratic Party. Saying grifter is like, I disagree with this person, and then you say, he's a grifter, she's a grifter. I get called a grifter on, a, on the daily, on Twitter, I'm like, man, I wish I was a little better at grifting. I wouldn't be eating ramen for lunch, okay? Somebody hooked me up with a grifting 101 class so I can make some serious coin out of this. And now, the part you've all been waiting for, the song of the week, uh, discovered a new band. They've actually had a couple albums out, but they're very underground. They're from Montreal, Canada. And instead of wasting their lockdown, like your humble podcast host, um, they actually recorded an entire album. They call it the Untourable Album, but now they're finally letting things up and letting people leave the country. 
Thanks, Justin Trudeau. Uh, so they can actually tour on it. I know they're coming to my uh, little village in uh, late November, but they're called Men I Trust, and their latest song is called Billy Toppy. fits into the dream pop genre, um, kind of C86. I'm using all the hipster terms here. Music reviewers always use these, so I thought I'd better as well to sound like I know what I'm talking about. But it has this driving beat, which is nice. It's just not all airy, wispy, whatever. Um, but I really liked it. It was catchy, and it popped out to me. So I thought I'd share it with you, dear listeners. And that is it for the show. Thank you to Troy Senek. Thank you to American Musical Supply. Check them out, everybody. And I'll be back to chat with you next week. Talk to you then. Ricochet. Join the conversation.